There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hello everyone, happy work week. I sort of imagine people don't listen to this at the weekends, is that right? That's why I drop it on a Monday. It's like kind of, I was going to drop an episode last Saturday or Sunday and I thought, people are just enjoying their weekends, chill out. Anyway, happy work day. Hi, this is Bruce Daisley. I've wanted to do an episode on mental health for a while and there's one person I wanted to do it with. Emily Reynolds is a remarkable writer. She writes ace stuff for publications like Wired, Stylist, The Guardian, Vice. Some of it occasionally, just occasionally, is about mental health. Her mental health doesn't define her any more than my colourblindness defines me. That was my attempt to be relatable. Anyhow, the older measure of a remarkable writer would be that they had the patronage and support of a broadsheet editor or they had like a zesty opinion column in a quality tabloid. I think the, the modern measure of a remarkable writer is the reviews that you read about them on Amazon. And the reviews of Emily's book, A Beginner's Guide to Losing Your Mind, are just remarkable. Just people sort of starry-eyed saying how it's helped them relate to family and friends or it's trans- transformed their own life. Someone who's just creating writing that inspires and, and helps thousands of people. Her book is A Beginner's Guide to Losing Your Mind. She's also one of the founders of The Second Source, which we covered in the Me Too episode about eight episodes ago. During the chat with Emily, we move on to cover Me Too. I've included it in the show notes. Emily wrote a blog post last year called An Incomplete List of All the Men in Media Who Have Wronged Me, which rightly picked up some steam because for those of us who walk around with blinkers on, it's a reminder of what's actually happening around us. Now, when I sat down last Tuesday night, my objective was to ask questions that weren't disrespectful or stupid. You know that thing where when it comes to mental health, you feel like you're just going to put your foot in it. And I think what I learned from the discussion I had here was that as long as you enter with true empathy 
there's nothing you can say that was going to upset someone. You can't ask stupid questions as long as you truly are trying to empathise. One note on the audio, through the hay fever months, I have a little cough, which Caro, uh, who sits next to me, has told me to go and get checked out. I got it checked out. It's hay fever. But like my colour blindness, I normally edit it out of the audio. But the uh, the clip-on mics we were using didn't work. So it doesn't really affect things, but you hear me cough occasionally. And it has zero impact on our beautiful chat. But I, I suspect people who stand for me will be worried. So in other words, mum, I'm OK. I'll WhatsApp you later. We're in the midst of a mental health crisis. And the more we understand it and try to adapt work to it, the better work will be for everyone. So like I say, I couldn't have picked a better guest. Here's Emily Reynolds. Welcome, Emily. Hello, thank you for having me. I thought if there was anyone who I was going to talk about mental health and wellness in the office, you were as good a person to ask (laughs) as anyone. So you've written on it and you've you've sort of shared a lot of things on these. And I I always get like dazzled when I see the stats on these things. Like I'll just read a couple of these things here. One in six people currently experiencing a mental health issue in the UK, where that's sort of depression or stress, anxiety, bipolar. GPs spend a third of their time on mental health issues, even though only 10% of the people with these issues actually seek help. I don't know whether it's anecdotal, whether it's truthful, but there seems to be a lot more evidence of people talking about mental health issues than even just five years ago. Yeah. So it seems like a growing phenomenon. From your experience and exploration, is it becoming more prevalent or are we just talking about it more? I would say we're probably talking about it more Although, obviously, there are different kind of modern pressures that uh, uh, people are experiencing. There is an absolutely vast difference to when I first started really thinking about it and writing about it, which was about four or five years ago. Um, Then I was just kind of blogging about it and talking about my own experiences. And I think, obviously, there have been people talking about it for years and years. But in the media, at least, there's been a huge uptick in, in people talking about it. I think... Um, you know, five years ago, you wouldn't have had someone like Prince Harry openly saying that he's had depression or, you know, he experienced kind of severe problems around his bereavement. I think that shows that there is it's definitely much more embedded in the discourse at the moment. That's interesting, isn't it? Because exactly like you say, you can't get more mainstream than Prince Harry or just bringing it into to the public domain. But even then, no one directly addresses it as something substantial to them. They just... They still skirt around it, saying he struggled with issues. Yeah, yeah, saying... yeah. And I think also there is still, I think, a lot of problems around kind of media discourse on on mental health. So, I think a problem that I have with it is that we mainly do focus on things like anxiety and depression, which obviously they're very prevalent, but they're also a lot easier to talk about and understand than things like personality disorders or psychotic disorders. Even bipolar is much less talked about than something like anxiety or depression. So, I think there's definitely a way to go, but it's good that we are now talking about it and and people are more aware. I remember when I first had mental health problems when I was, what, 14 or 15, my mum basically had no idea how to deal with it. And she she was a nurse for 50 years, so she's more kind of clued up on on health issues than maybe the average person. But even she didn't know how best to deal with it. She didn't know what books to read or anything like that. But I think now, I think she'd have a much better idea of how to deal with it because it's talked about so much. There are so many books about it. No, which I think is a good thing. Before we go on and talk about mental health and work, just from the outside, I'm always immensely in awe. There's another, there's a, there's a journalist that I've, I sort of follow who often tweets about her mental health 
issues and will disappear for a few weeks and then will come back and say, I've had this. And she's full-time at a publication. And I'm always in awe of the sense, from, from that position of feeling sort of fragile and vulnerable, to, to confess to that, not, not for any other reason then you're presuming people will interpret that with an open mind. Mm. And, you know, I would hope that the world's empathetic, but, you know, all of the evidence suggests that there's as much lack of empathy as empathy. And I always think, wow, is that going to be career limiting for that person, even though the braveness is... He's admirable. I think it's easier, I have to say, in an industry like journalism, um, okay. I think, than maybe other industries. Even when I used to work in like advertising and PR, there was much less open mind, although that was a few years ago, so I don't know whether things have kind of changed now. But, I mean, it is definitely brave, and even working in like a very liberal kind of industry, I do sometimes still get kind of... Um, not non-empathetic comments, but people who don't really understand it or people who make assumptions, which I think is one of the things that kind of happens in a workplace is that there are lots of stereotypes around someone with particular mental health problems. You know, maybe they're, or they're not trying hard enough or they're lazy or all of these kind of, they're irresponsible, you can't trust them, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, you can't rely on them to follow through with something. I think those things are still embedded in people's minds. So it is very brave for people to, to talk about it um people do often ask me like advice you know should I tell my colleagues or my boss that I have mental health problems I can't always I think in an ideal world yes but you can't I can't always give that advice like with full you know bodied advice because you don't actually know how people respond and I think there is a, still an awful lot of stigma um around it so such a dilemma, right? So, so yeah. let's go through that for, from someone's point of view. I presume it's sort of like separating the worlds of dating and, and jobs. You sort of feel like probably it is a first date thing that you want to be honest with someone. But, but jobs-wise, mm. especially if you need work and you, and you know that your capability is more than enough to do the job. Yeah, it really it is really difficult. I think I'm actually in a weirdly privileged position in that I write about it so much because right. anyone that offers me a job or commissions me knows, and right. half the time they're commissioning for that reason. Um, but most people don't actually have a career that's entirely based around their own mental health, so um, it's not as easy. So yeah, I don't know. It's very it is a dilemma. It's very difficult, which is why I always try and avoid giving anyone any definitive advice on it because it obviously depends on the situation. Do you think some of the, the the terminology has been appropriated by people which doesn't help so i was just thinking specifically yeah i I see a lot of people now saying you know in in tweets saying i'm having a bad mental health day and 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 because i I guess this is such a spectrum subjective spectrum of what that is but I, i remember hearing about someone recently saying that their work has introduced mindful minutes at the start yeah. of meetings which is just like this nonsense fake science right the idea that you can have a mindful one minute, one minute yeah. at the start of a meeting and it has any benefit but because people have sort of taken things that are adjacent to it and tried to turn it into well it's like wellness versus mental health right. I think is that's relevant there isn't it yeah. you know wellness could mean any number of things versus something that's actually going to help mental health. I think mindfulness is a really good example because mindfulness is actually at the heart of quite a lot of um, kind of really good therapies. So like DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, one of the, which was designed for people with borderline personality disorder, but is now used kind of more widely. That has mindfulness kind of at its core, but it's a practice that you have to work on and that has very specific 
parameters and you know it's not just you know sitting in silence in a meeting for one minute you know it's something that you have to consciously work on you know every day really um yeah and i think some of that also is part of a a thing where people are kind of tasked with taking responsibility for their own mental health which i think is part of a wider you know the time to talk thing which obviously has actually been now kind of more critiqued than it was to begin with in that talking isn't going to cure your mental health problem but it's often presented kind of by the government for example as, as kind of a panacea mm. like, oh, if you just talk about it mm. then that will be fine but obviously that's not the case you know you have to go to the doctor and then you have to be on a waiting list and then you have to spend maybe your whole life working on your mental health um i think mindfulness is one of those examples where they're like oh you can you can do this thing for yourself when actually what a lot of people actually need is kind of structured support from from mental health services um so i think p- part of that is kind of palming it off on, on the individual saying like, well, your friends should listen to you and you should do mindfulness and your mental health is your responsibility, which I think is kind of problematic to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> which part, which part do you take issue with there? The- well, I think that you obviously, you can take responsibility for your mental health and you should take responsibility for doing things that, you know, make you feel better or that help you with your mental health, which is why I'm such a big fan of self-care and it's kind of genuine meaning. But also, it's not going to be the be-all and end-all of your, your looking after your mental health. You need, yeah. like, like, I need support from a care coordinator or a GP or a psychiatrist. Like, doing mindfulness, no matter how good my intentions are or how often I do it, that's not going to be enough for someone with bipolar, for example, or someone with severe depression. Like, they might need therapy, they might need antidepressants, like a minute of mindfulness or whatever is not really going to do very much for them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely get that. In your, um, you you wrote a book on this, didn't you? And, yeah. and in your book, I was fascinated because you said firstly you knew from the age of sort of fourteen. That, yeah. That there's something wrong. Yeah, something some wrong. <laughs> that must be hard, you know, because don't we all think there's something wrong with us at fourteen? So yeah, it's sort of hard to sort of separate what is just teenage angst. Well, that's what when I went to the GP. That was when I first went to the GP. That is actually the first the first time I ever went to see a GP about my mental health problems, he said, oh, you're just a teenager. I was very, very shy then, so I was just like, okay. But I, I think I knew that there Did was... Did you go on your own or to go with your No, mom? I w- well, my mum took me, but I went in on my own. Okay. I think if she'd come in with me, she would have argued right. <laughs> vociferously okay. with him, but I went in on my own. Um, and, yeah, he just said, oh, you're just a teenager. But I did actually know, even then, that the problems were more significant than, like, that of my peers, really. And And... And I remember you sort of, the, the way you described what was a revelation to me was firstly like the energised as well as the unenergised moments. That's mm. probably a bad description of it. In terms of the bipolar. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So like these periods of fantastical excitement mm. and energisation and feeling sort of exhilarated by everything, flipping into these moments where you just didn't want to get out of bed. And just yeah. Well, the, the mania can be quite fun sometimes, which is... Um, it gets fun and fun and fun until it suddenly really isn't very fun at all. So, yeah, it, it is it is interesting having to deal with them both and that they both come with their own kind of problems, really. Do, do you think... All of my questions here are going to be incredibly naive. So, uh, but do you think, like you mentioned before, that creative in- industries mm-hmm. have got this more accepting approach to mental health issues? Mm-hmm. And do you think it's because sometimes some of those effects, th- those elements of... Uh, that energised period actually is, is compatible with creativity at times. Yeah, well, I think sometimes when I um, when I'm 
just at the start of a manic episode and haven't quite realised that something's wrong. I do. I am very productive. Right. Um, I am like very creative, um, and I'm very lucky. I appreciate that's a privileged position because I sit at home and write all day. That's my job. You know, I don't have to come into an office and talk to normal people and appear like a normal person. Um, but yeah, for me, it does. But I think also the, pro- the problems that it causes and have caused me in offices or in more kind of traditional working environments have also have probably outweighed the the negligible positive impact that it's had on my actual work. Just looking now, at sort of aside from your own experience, um, just thinking about because I know you spent ages looking at all elements of these things for um, to, to write about them. I was interested in how modern work is impacting on the full spectrum of Mm. mental health issues. And I was interested, you sent me an article which was about how wellness programmes were sort of, and mental mental health programmes were sort of being mandated in some places. And there was, and then the US company Zappos, which is now owned by Amazon, and I I read a quote by the the guy who set that up, saying that, you know, their happiness programme, part of their happiness programme was they, they planned to get rid of 10% of their workforce who don't go along with their happiness programme. Well, that's sure to make everyone feel relaxed and yeah. happy in the workplace. Like, ah, I'm not being happy enough. And I thought, <laughs> I saw it as, if you see it through a cynical eye, you see, like, simultaneously people have been invited to be more open and forthcoming mm. and, you know, yield more of themselves. And we hear all the time about, you know, share vulnerabilities at work and, mm. and you know, that's the way you get to openness and creativity. And then on the other side, you forget that these are sort of capitalist businesses. Yeah. And at the end of the day, they just want to maximise their profit. And and I wonder if we sometimes, we look at it a bit naively. I I don't know whether whether people are going to fall foul of actually there is far more... um, aggression in the system than we sometimes give it credit for. Well, I think what you said about is basically like a capitalist system is kind of pivotal to those kind of wellness programs. And a lot of them actually, the way that they talk about mental health is quite revealing because they basically talk about it as a kind of, it's like a cost and they want their workers to be productive. You know, it's not actually about well-being in, in, a, in a genuine sense. It's about making their workers the most productive, you know, get, making them less stressed so they can make the company more money. Um, and I actually saw a really interesting tweet that I've written down that my friend Suze, who's at Suze Marsupial, if anyone wants to follow her, wrote uh, during Mental Health Awareness Week. And it was she said that some of the best things that companies can do for mental health are actually nothing to do with wellbeing programmes. She said three things that companies could do is make sure that people are working to their contracted hours, i.e. people aren't doing ridiculous amounts of overtime, um, paid sick leave, and she said um, rotors with, a, with two weeks' notice for people who are doing shift work. And I think that, that that's actually probably, those suggestions would probably be far more useful in terms of burnout, stress, depression, than, you know, being able to do yoga in the office or right. something like that. And got it, because what you're basically saying there, to sort of link the two things you said, you said, look, you know, you said the idea of sort of managing your own wellness is, is sometimes a bit over the top, but you're saying that if you are having a bad time, these things can exacerbate it. Is that what you're saying? Like the quote, those things. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the quote, the the uh, the time, the um, 
what do we call it? The what's the working what? to your contracted hours? Yeah, the, the third one. What's the third? Oh, rotors with the rotors, rotors, yeah, rotors. for shift work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because that shift work can have a massive, massive impact on, on people's mental health. Right. Like, there's lots of uh, research that uh, that shows that shift work can have a really detrimental impact on people's mental health. Right. So, and if you think about things like zero hour contract, which are much more common now, you know, you can not know whether you're working until the day, and then suddenly your boss says you have to come in now, and you have to go in no matter how you're feeling or no matter what else you've got to do. That's not going to be good for someone's mental health and that kind of thing is much more prevalent now um think of like the gig economy and and how that's growing those people basically are on zero hour contracts and that's not going to be good for someone's mental health i actually think that sorting out those kind of basic very boring like labor rights issues are probably more beneficial to overall mental health than than something where you're gonna meditate with your boss in an ashram or wherever at the weekend you know i don't think that that's I mean, that's all well and good, but that's probably going to benefit people who don't have serious mental health problems more than it is benefit someone that has bipolar or depression or, or something like that. They're sort of cosmetic, aren't they, rather than sort of anything? Of, so. Yeah, and I think that, I don't know if I'm being a bit cynical here, but I think that mental health is now kind of an issue that people want to be seen to be addressing. You know, it's kind of like a hot topic at the moment. I'm sure in six months' time will be something else and we'll have all forgotten about depression. But um, so I think a lot of companies are like, oh, shit, we need to be sh- like shown to be doing something around mental health, you know. But I don't know whether that's me just being a kind of cynical leftist. But um, the thing I worry about with that is that if you think of all the other tokenistic things that companies might do, mm. we're going to increase ethnic diversity. We're going to increase gender, uh, gender balance at the top of the company. The mental health one is pretty invisible, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, they can they can have videos with disabled members of staff but the mental health one is invisible and yeah, so lots of people aren't going to want to disclose their absolutely. mental health status at work which is their right and, and for some people it doesn't interfere with their work and they why should they feel that they yeah. have to disclose but those companies that are just playing the tokenistic game mm. they won't even pay lip service to it will they no it's, it's quite difficult to which I think is one of the reasons why they talk about it in terms of productivity it's one of the things that irritates me about um, mental health discourse within mental health services is the idea that when you're, you're, you're well or you're recovered when you're able to go back to work, which is a thing that has been, you know, I've been told before, like, oh, you're going to work, so you must be fine, when I've actually been able somehow to go into the office when I've had some of the worst mental health issues of my, li- of my life. So right. the worst periods of my life. I, I remember the worst depressive period I've ever had in my life, which was just t- terrible, and I was going to the office every single day. I don't know how. It was like a superhuman effort, but I was going in, so it's not a very good way of measuring it. Um, lots of see lots of press releases, lots of kind of political press releases and stuff that talk about mental health as kind of a, however many billion pound loss to the economy every year and things like that. Yeah, like six billion. I mean, it becomes yeah, meaningless. I, I don't know what that means. Well, yeah. Also, it's just I just don't think that's a useful way of looking yeah. at it. It's not like it's not humane. It's not actually caring about people's well-being. I understand that it's a statistic that maybe shows people how big a problem it is, but I just don't think that we should be framing it like that at all. And that's one of the major problems with well-being programs and is seeing people as valuable because of their output rather yeah. than how they feel. Yeah. And tell me this. So you, so along the way there, you mentioned two things that I want to go to. First was contracted hours. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what about the uncontracted hours, like the digital availability that we all yeah. can see to our company? And the second part, and let's do this first, was about you going into work during the worst times that you yeah. ever experienced. 
and I'm just trying to think, irrespective of like bosses out the out the way. But if you're a colleague of someone, mm. how would you? What are the ways that you would spot that someone's having a bad time? And is there anything you can actually do? I think it's quite difficult because I think firstly it depends on the relationship that you have with your colleague. Yeah. So I've worked in places where my colleagues have simply been my colleagues. I don't speak to them outside work. I think in those cases it's very difficult because you don't want to overstep a boundary. You don't like again, like I said, lots of people don't want to talk about their mental health problems. Yeah. And I think I would probably actually even I being so open about it would feel maybe I don't want to say aggrieved, but I would feel a bit taken aback or. I don't know what the right word is. Not annoyed, but if someone came up to me and said, "Like, are you okay?" or you know, "I've noticed that you're not eating lunch, or you're you look really tired, or you're anything like that," I think I would probably feel a bit like they'd overstepped a mark a little yeah. bit. So it is very difficult. If it's a friend, then I think you would approach them as lots of people are friends with, like genuinely friends with their colleagues. I think you would approach them as you would approach a friend to talk about it. You know, so, so, so like you that. now seeing you in that situation, did you have enough friends there? Probably not because, and also that was an awkward situation too, which is one of freelance work, also precarious yeah. work, is another thing that is impacting people's mental health, is that I was working like on a freelance contract doing copywriting in an agency. So I knew my colleagues, but I didn't really know them. And they and they also had basically no base like on which to, to, to judge how I was feeling. Like I might just have been that withdrawn and quiet and greasy and weird all of the time. Like they didn't, they had no idea. <laughs> if, if I think I, if I went into one of my workplaces, like one of the places I regularly freelance now, they would notice a difference. Right. Okay. But they didn't really know me, so they had they had no idea, basically. Um, but it was very difficult. Just when you're a freelancer, you're a bit like the temp, or you, or you. Pretty much. Yeah. Are you? So like, the, you're just the weird freelancer, right? Yeah, I try now to be loud and insert my presence okay. into the wherever I'm working <laughs> okay. but I, it was a few years ago and I just started out in my career and I was like I don't know what I'm doing I'm frightened I don't know anyone I'm just going to be quiet and do my work really quietly but I think a lot of people have that experience of freelancing they yeah. just sit there don't say anything go home yeah. so in, in those cases how are you meant to know whether someone's struggling you have no idea you basically well I was talking to a friend does recently. it make it worse when people don't talk to you I think in that case it probably was better that no one was speaking okay. to me because I think the, the effort of having to appear yeah, yeah, social yeah, yeah, would have been yeah. difficult but I talked to a friend the other day who is also a journalist and he freelances in you know all sorts of places and he was talking about the newspaper he was freelancing at and I was asking how it was and he said oh, you know, no one talks to me, I just go in, I do my work, everyone talks on Slack, nobody talks out loud to one another, it goes home. And he said the only thing that he said all day, one day, was hi, all that morning, and then bye in the evening. They're the only two things he said out loud that day, and that's working in an office. Right. So. And and was he for or against that? I think he was quite neutral about it. Okay. <laughs> I don't okay. think he really minded because he was like, I'm not going to be here for very much longer, so that's completely fine. But. It's conflicted, isn't it? Because... You know, one of the things that they say overall, aside from mental health, they say that spending time with friends is one mm. of the best things for your happiness. Yeah. But if these people aren't your friends and so you're doing that awkward lip service all day, then I'm not sure that would make you happier anyway. No, it, well, when I'm really depressed, I find it very difficult to socialise even with people that I know. Yeah. And I've had, you know, sometimes I'll have friends come round to be like, you okay? And they'll just, we'll just sit there all evening and neither of us will really speak. We'll just watch TV or be on our phones or something. If it's that much effort to talk to someone that I've known for 10 years, then socialising with colleagues is going to be Small incredibly... Small Yeah, it's really difficult. And if you have a problem with that anyway, or you find that difficult, which lots of people do, it actually takes a lot of energy 
Let's ask about that then quickly because someone was chatting to me about forced fun, mm. and uh, and like my whole thing was I think because I've got this like romanticised notion of bar jobs I used to have when I was. 19 yeah and they're like my first proper job there was a great culture where everyone went to pub all the time and so i've got this romantic notion that that work culture can be like a birthday party yeah but like a six-year-old's birthday party <laughs> where everyone's, and uh, and so i'm always interested in work culture and i was chatting to someone here in our moments team a journalist and he said forced fun is like uh his worst thing ever oh wow because you know being for in a job he previously had they were forced to go to the pub and forced to stand there, and you've got like the alpha males making mm. borderline unacceptable jokes. But if you don't go and hang with them, you're ostracised. Yeah. If you do hang with them, you hate yourself and you hate them. The awkwardness, <laughs> and and I was just interested in that sort of that forced fun aspect. Of, a lot of work still talks about we've got a pub culture here. Yeah, I think that the drinking thing is a massive problem actually, especially for people with mental health problems, um, and also people with kind of issues with alcoholism or addiction which is actually quite a lot of people Mm. lots of work you know like you're saying like lots of fun you have with work is going to the pub you know you go to the pub on friday and that's where you socialize with your colleagues if you don't drink or you don't want to be around alcohol uh if you're on antidepressants and you can't drink or if you have an alcohol problem that's really 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 difficult um and also people are weirdly invasive about it so i didn't drink for about nine or ten months last year and any time I went out to the pub, even with strangers who would never, I went to a wedding and I wasn't drinking. These complete strangers were going like, why aren't you drinking? Have a drink, have a drink. And I was like, you have no idea why I'm not no. like, you know, it might be something really, really, really personal. I, I personally took kind of perverse, like perverse fun and being like, I've got an alcohol problem. And then they were like, oh no. But most people probably aren't going to want to do that, right. especially with their colleagues. But, but you know? so we've constructed our whole society around no, I booze, know. right? It, well, I only really actually noticed when I stopped drinking, basically. I was like, I need to recalibrate my relationship with alcohol, which I did quite successfully. Um, but that period, I was like, this is bizarre. And I actually just stopped going to the pub. So it wasn't fun, basically. It was just quite draining to have yeah. to explain all the time. Right, and, okay. and, and you're not going to want to do that with colleagues. Yeah. So you, you're probably going to miss out. Yeah, and so like we had someone in, in here actually from another country, and he said every time you do it, like five years ago, every time you do a social event, I don't understand why it has to be drink related. But it always is. It, it always places, is. Yeah. And and the, and, like, the remarkable thing. With drinks on a Friday. Or and the remarkable thing is. It hadn't even occurred. Like it was such a, you know, when like it's like the end of the sixth sense. It's like what? <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Are> we- yeah. <laughs> and suddenly you realise, oh Christ! I can't think of a single time that we haven't tried to force wine down people's necks. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really, really common. I think it, but I think that is problematic. Yeah. It's right. Okay. It's just interesting that because I think we're a long way from reaching a norm where turning up saying you're not going to drink doesn't at least elicit a funny luck right yeah yeah people are really 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 weird about it i always just think well (laughs) some of the options are i'm really ill i'm taking medication for something or i'm an alcoholic they're a few of the options and none of them are really appropriate to bring up with someone that you don't know (laughs) you know they're not really things that you're going to just announce to some strangers they're all showstoppers aren't they (laughs) exactly oh right okay well i shouldn't have asked (laughs) but it's it's it is strange how people I, I think that just shows how prevalent it is and how, yeah. how people don't notice how willing they are to question people on their they're not drinking 
Let's go back to the digital availability. Yeah. So, you know, your your little checklist that you had from your friend there was, was one of them was work your contracted hours. Mm. But, of course, all of us, we mentioned Slack there. Presumably mm-hmm. that guy's got Slack on his phone and, mm-hmm. and these pings coming in, these, these people asking you to jump on a call outside of hours. How, how do you... In that situation, do you just have to have rules as well about how you'll use email out of hours? Yeah, I think personally I now won't respond to emails. Again, I'm quite lucky because I work for myself basically and, you know, what I'm doing is not the end of the world if they're like, please file this piece at 6pm on a Friday and no one's going to die if I don't. But um, I have personally set rules, you know, I won't reply at certain times in the evening and I won't. I try not to look at my emails at all over the weekend basically and I certainly won't respond to any that are related to work unless it really is something very very time sensitive but I mean I think that's the ideal answer if you if you work for a company where that's expected it is a little bit different and I'm not really sure what to suggest for for people like that because some people have bosses who will email them at three in the morning and expect them to they'll expect them to reply it's just an expectation and if you work in that kind of environment and you want to get a promotion or you want to continue doing well at work then it's very difficult to to say no I'm not doing that yeah. you know if if, the, if that's what the expectation is in your workplace yeah. you know it's, it is very very difficult I have friends at work for various different media companies and they say like oh you know my boss in New York expects me to respond to his email when it's 4am our time and I always have my phone on loud in bed so I can respond and that's not going to be conducive to good mental health even in the most stable steady non-mentally ill person you know waking up at all hours of night being stressed all the time constantly thinking about work is not good if you're going to create a an experiment in a big brother style show of a way to put someone on edge emails from their boss at 4am would be top of the list wouldn't it wouldn't it? Like the shock of trying to swing yourself into action in the middle of deep yeah. sleep. Yeah, and also I just think, going back to what I was talking about, human beings as like units of labour, if that's your whole life is thinking about work or being on your toes waiting for your boss to email you, then how are you meant to have any kind of self-growth or self-identity of outside of your, your workplace, which I don't think is healthy either. I yeah. think that I think people in London are actually very, very guilty of this. You know, it's the norm that everyone is completely obsessed with their careers and you know, people, you know, just focus on that to, to the point of obsession. Yeah. I don't think that that's necessarily a particularly healthy way of thinking about ourselves. Have you seen anything that you, you think is a good sign of the way that things are improving? Someone told me, a national newspaper, not the, the one or two that you might think, have, have introduced a men's mental health mm. group yeah. where men just get together and discuss things. And I think, you know... Sometimes there's an entry point via bereavement or like circumstances place someone mm-hmm. in a bad place rather than uh, biology has placed them in a bad place. But through whatever thing, but someone said it's not only a big group, it's a growing group of people. And because this is a collection of people from there, it's acted as sort of a good signal mm-hmm. that these things are okay to discuss. Have you, have you seen anything else that you think oh, is God. a sign we're moving in the right direction? Well, I think the actually the kind of the articles and the even like the the tweets and stuff we were seeing this mental health awareness week were a really good sign that we're moving in the right direction because i think there was a, a very definite move away from the time to talk narrative and towards a kind of more structural analysis of it and just the the types of articles 
I know this is very, very anecdotal, but the types of articles I'm being asked to write are now changing quite a lot. Okay. They're not about the same things. I think people are aware now that mental health is an issue. And I think now people are keen to go that step beyond being aware and talking about it and want to kind of find out ways that we can address it kind of in a more structural way, which I think is really good. Okay. So what's so a no longer reaching for the why are you feeling like that? Well, just the, you know, the, the idea that just talk about it and, and people will accept it and blah, blah, blah. You know, even if they do accept it, you'll still have to go to the doctor or you might, as I said, get antidepressants or go to therapy or any number of things. The, the talking is, is the beginning bit of the journey. It's not the entire, yeah. the be all and end all. And I think the fact that we're moving away from that narrative is actually a really, really good sign. Yeah, I mean, just thinking overall about like the state of work and the way that collectively we can improve these things. What other suggestions do you think you've got there? I think that people should talk to their colleagues, maybe not their bosses about these things. And like you said, organise groups together and to talk about their mental health. Um, I think continuing to educate people on mental health problems so people who don't have them are not going to be holding on to those kind of stigmas and also for people to join a union which is the main the main point I wanted to make is that people should join a union um I've had like several friends who have been basically illegally um fired for mental health problems essentially get out is, seriously yeah, yeah so I have one talk friend, me through how that would happen so I were I, I uh, my friend works for a we used to work for a, a media agency and she had to take time off work, but she has terrible anxiety and she had to take time off work. Um, and she was an account manager and the the client were angry that she had um, not responded to all of the emails and that because she was managing their, that client and the client then complained about her. And then she basically got fired because she had been, a complaint had been made, but she was off work sick and she had to take them to an employment tribunal and this, that and the other. Um, but that kind of thing is actually not that rare. You know, I've had friends who have been like formally um, reprimanded at work for taking time off or having to go to the doctor. Or, you know, I have a friend who uh, works in journalism and she wanted 20 extra minutes on her lunchtime so she could go to therapy once a week, which is really not a very big ask, considering the ridiculous hours that people put in in, in journalism. She works for print as well. So she's often there well after her contracted hours doing work and, and her work basically um, said, no, you can't have the extra 20 minutes. But she went to the NUJ and basically said, no, you have to. So my recommendation there would also be join a union and have... Right, you okay. Know, I think especially in contract work and sort yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, the moment you start telling me that, it makes me feel like... You know, like you wrote that brilliant blog post which was it became part of me too didn't it oh yeah yeah what was the blog post called an incomplete list of men in the media who've wronged me right and it was (laughs) like but it was like this for me and I'm sure I'm not alone it caught hold it was like this astonishing list of things that that happened that was only a few of them and and it was especially predicated on the fact that especially in freelance work there's often a power inequality, right? Yeah, so, massively. So someone's commissioning something and he's going to commission things from people he likes more than others. Yeah, and, and if that's somewhere you really, really want to write, or if you work... At that time, I was working in quite a small area of journalism. I was basically only doing kind of tech and science journalism, which is quite actually quite a small yeah. field. And so it was like, well, I can't piss this guy off because... But what I'm worried about is, as you were take, telling me the mental health one, I'm like... There's going to be no Me Too moment for mental health in the sense that if someone gets wronged in those situations and they're not part of a union and they're in an ununionized environment, mm. 
what do you think about Deliveroo or right. Uber or how how's like someone gonna? Well, it's impossible. Basically, they they have absolutely no rights, which yeah. is yeah, which is very depressing. Yeah, your thing was was directly for me. Like th- that post, we'll briefly cover that now because that in itself is like a fascinating aspect. I, I reread the Susan Fowler blog post. Mm two days ago you know she's the uber woman who left and on her first day in her team her boss said that he had a girlfriend but he was in an open relationship and he was looking for someone to have sex with wow and that was like her first day in her team and she reported that and they were told and so many echoes to what you said there that it made me feel oh right the workplace that I thought was benign and mm. I always thought, like, I had this ridiculous idea because I came from a council estate in Birmingham. I thought work was a meritocracy. I thought, because <laughs> if people like me have done all right, yeah. then it, work must be fair. And then I read your thing and I thought, I'm such an idiot. Well, I think the power imbalance thing is actually really interesting. Um, and one thing we haven't really talked about is the people who are most likely to be affected by these things are not middle class journalists like me. It's women who are working as... Uh, cleaners or yeah. you know as we said people working in the gig economy uber drivers you know people who have absolutely no power whatsoever they don't have power they don't have a union they don't have any labor rights whatsoever they're the people that are going to be most affected by these things which is which is really bad and which is why i think we should you know my approach is kind of definitely a strong leftist approach to mental health because i think those things desperately need tackling as well and they, they're part of the wider problem with people having mental health problems it's hard to even contemplate isn't it like if you're a, a mum and you've got responsibility for kids mm. or if you're, like you say, just you, you work as a cleaner or an Uber driver and you've there's, there's a direct relationship between you getting out of bed and working mm-hmm. and you eating. Yeah. Or you maintaining this. Yeah, and you, ha- you have to. You have to get up and do it, which is... There's no, they have no HR department or they... And also, if, if, if you're working in a kind of low-paid job, like you're a cleaner or whatever, if you complain about someone who's much senior to you in an office or whatever, then they're not going to listen to you yeah. is, a, is another aspect. And I think having to work in those toxic environments on top of your work already being precarious and your work being low paid, that is a very, very bad mix for lots of people. And they're the people who are least likely to be able to access mental health services as well, because yeah. obviously people who work in, in, in better paid jobs can pay for therapy on their own or they can pay to see a private psychiatrist. Yeah. If you're working in that kind of environment, you absolutely can't. Which is, which is awful. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewellery gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Just finish. Is, yeah. Go on. Sorry, I was just going to say um, that's why we kind of the structural approach is much better than the individual approach yeah. to me, anyway. To finish, what would you advice would you give to someone to be a more um, empathetic colleague and mm-hmm. notice these things, or maybe people don't want their situation to be noticed? But what advice would you give to someone to try and create help create a more positive environment for mental health? Well, I think you can create a positive and empathetic environment without actually approaching any colleagues if you think they have a problem with mental health or mental illness. Um, So I think um, it's all kind of linked. So I think creating a kind of non-sexist, racist, discriminatory environment is good. Not making jokes uh, about any of those things. Like, don't make any jokes about rape. Don't make any racist jokes. Don't make any jokes about mental illness which sounds really obvious, but is not. And lots of people still do it. And lots of people still think that those kind of edgy jokes are quite funny when actually they can really alienate someone. I think trying to educate yourself on mental health problems. Um, try, uh, there, there's also mental health first aid is a thing that, that has now been rolled out, which is basically like first aid for mental health. So you can go and get that. And I think lots of uh, in, in places of employment are actually paying for those now so you can go and get mental health first aid which helps you identify how a colleague might be feeling how to approach it that kind of thing that could be helpful if we're talking about higher up the chain that mind do lots of training and kind of consultancy around this so if you're keen to make your workplace more open and less discriminatory for someone with mental health problems then that's also a really good place to start as well I think they all sound quite obvious but I think lots of places don't have any of those things um, and I think yeah paying people fairly and not expecting too much of them being flexible also if you're a boss if someone if i think giving someone flexibility if they have a mental health problem that they've disclosed to you is actually really really important so that would be also be my advice and join the union yes and join the union (laughs) (laughs) such a funny world we live in isn't it after i left emily i dashed off home it was tuesday night emily posted a photo after of her going to dinner on her own, like like people do. She posted an image of her risotto and a delicious-looking glass of red wine. When I looked, it had 200 likes. She's a journalist. She does numbers. But there were loads of men, and seriously, they were all men, commenting on her having shit risotto. Why is this? Is this negging that people have to try and put each other down? She even said it was delicious. Are people trying to start banter by being dismissive or being edgy? Man, seriously, the world is messed up for women and men don't see half of it. And even, and especially when it's them doing it. Christ. Thank you, Emily Reynolds. She wasn't on to promote her book, A Beginner's Guide to Losing Your Mind. I've just given it a reference because all power to people connecting and helping to change those things. Came out last year, but the comments include people feeling like it helped them to relate to the the world around them and transforming lives. Legend. 
Thank you. Next week is work hacks. So something I've done before, people who have changed their own work and had an impact on it. Really trivial little things that people in the course of the last six months have stopped me and said, we did this and this is what happened. I think you'll enjoy that one. Hit me up on the socials, LinkedIn. (laughs) Had a long discourse this week with a guy offering me chauffeuring services. Uh, But hit me up on LinkedIn and the best way to contact me is to follow us on Twitter by searching Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Bye. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.